Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. I'm your host, Ani Lee. My interest in fiber goes back to childhood, when I'd pore over bedding catalogs and obsess over fiber content and thread count. My mother, bless her, taught me to knit at age 10, and I've fallen increasingly in love with all things fiber ever since. I started the Close Knit Podcast in 2016, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of speaking to over 50 incredible people since then. On this podcast, you'll hear from all kinds of folks who share a love of fibers, from full-time practicing artists to those whose main practice is mending their garments. I'm interested in hearing and sharing as many people's stories and experiences with fiber as I possibly can, because I believe each of these unique stories is powerful and teaches us more about how humans use fiber to make sense of the world around us. This podcast is supported by a very special community on Patreon. Pledging just $5 a month there helps me keep Close-Knit up and running by covering hosting and streaming costs and paying my wonderful editor. I cannot thank you all enough for your support, as it's what enables me to sustainably continue this work. So if you've ever enjoyed an episode, please consider pledging your support at patreon.com slash closeknit. That's www.patreon.com slash closeknit. This is episode 54 of the Close Knit Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Marcy and Hubbard-Jones of Housework. With an obsession for manufacturing details and a strict set of material standards, the co-founding couple of Housework bring their unconventional backgrounds in the arts and health food together to bear a meticulously curated selection of clothing and home goods with care for every detail, down to things like the dye stuffs of garments, as well as the glazes of ceramics and finishes on their wooden wares. The Housework clothing catalog is uniquely and strictly composed of truly natural fibers. No polyblends or pseudo-natural fibers like rayon. All undyed or naturally dyed with plants and minerals, with even commonly disregarded elements like the stitching thread being made of entirely compostable natural fibers. Marcy, Hubbard, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's so nice to have you here. Well, I say here, but actually we're, you know, I'm in a tiny box of a closet and you all are in your home. I know you all have a sleeping baby that we don't necessarily want to wake up and we might be interrupted by, so we'll preface that here. So I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your backgrounds. I often find that people sort of find their way into fiber through similar veins, but I have a sense that maybe you all have a different have a different path into this. And from the conversations that we've had, maybe there's like a different sort of path here that I think actually will overlap in a lot of ways that we might not expect. Marcy, I'd love to know, as a kid, do you have any memories of working with fiber or was there any fiber within your family? Yes. My grandma and my great grandma, especially on my mom's side, were like very, very, they were serious seamstresses. Like they didn't do it professionally, Mm. but my great grandma made all of my grandma's clothes growing up. And my grandma made most of my mom's clothes while she was growing up. So I had like a little bit of history there. It kind of broke a little bit with my mom. She does like embroidery and like things like that, but didn't create like structured clothing or anything like that. She would just decorate items. But yeah, growing up, I would like 
collaborate on projects with my grandma. I'd like tell her that I wanted a dress and she would like ask for, you know, the details that I wanted, the fabric I wanted, that sort of thing. All my Halloween costumes were custom (laughs) made. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have a favorite? Of course you do. You've told me a million times about my favorite. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz one. Oh yeah, that one's really (laughs) cute. Yeah, it was Dorothy (laughs) for my I think first or second Halloween. And then she had a little schnauzer, which was my Toto. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so I walked around with Toto, and I was dressed as Dorothy, and it was I was very, very proud of that. Yeah. That so Wizard of Oz cute. was, like, my first movie, so being Dorothy was, like, very epic for me. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah. Tiny Marcy being, like, extremely delighted by that and having a little schnauzer is I know, just, looking like, back that I had the dog is, like pretty awesome (laughs) it's such a cute that's just like such a cute image i can't even imagine i like it's just yeah it's too much yeah (laughs) um that's i love that however did do you have a do you i mean i probably not a similar story (laughs) (laughs) yeah marcy's family definitely has like a more direct relationship to fiber i mean like we all have a relationship to fiber and i think we probably realize it more as we get older but yeah there's nothing like that in my family i mean the most that I have is really just like a personal aesthetic relationship. And like, you know, we, we met at art school and like, that's really like our core founding background is art. Um, and you know, like plenty of artists probably identify with growing up. Like you always have like this vision of an ideal of something that very often because of the restrictions of youth, you can't obtain, you know, like I always had like very particular aesthetic like aspirations for my clothing and wardrobe that were completely impossible because I had no idea how to talk about them. I didn't have money to obtain them, even if I did know where they were. And just like getting into thrifting in high school, you like start to find funkier stuff and like piece something together out of these like desperate threads. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, no. So I want to hear that, that sort of inception story. I want to hear about you two meeting art school how that all came together and then how that eventually became like housework and I want the long form you know I want I want all the details (laughs) you know no least spare no detail here I want to know it all that's a a cool path (laughs) I mean we I was I studied fine art and he studied music and for me that ended up mostly manifesting as writing um which I was realizing just the other day when I was thinking about talking with you um, about like coming to fiber and stuff that I think it's really interesting that I've made it to a point where I'm selling clothing um, Mm. because I grew up like wanting to be a fashion designer Mm. and like had notebooks full of like doodles of like clothing that I fantasized about making. And then I would do these little projects with my grandma and stuff. And at some point when I was like, in late high school or like starting college, I was like, wait, fashion is superficial and stupid. I don't care about this. (laughs) I want to be a good person. So I'm not going to do anything related to that anymore. And then it just like gave me this complex about like making in general as I'm in art school where you're expected to make stuff. Interesting. And I was like, that's all really like superfluous. It's wasteful. I don't feel good about making things that Mm. aren't useful I guess and so that's what like eventually there led me to writing um Mm. but since then I have been able to find 
meaning, I guess, in, in textiles since having realizations that like they can be, I mean, obviously they can be functional, they can be beautiful, they can be purposeful. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, just you're talking about how part of your complex with art was being disturbed by the waste of material production and like kind of on the other side of that now like going into housework it's been so much about it's like a eliminating waste i guess yeah, places where like, waste isn't really a relevant part of the conversation yeah mercy i'm super curious though because so you talk about i always wanted to be a fashion designer like i was a kid wanted to be a fashion designer do you have like a memory of what put that there like do you know why or like how that you know i'm just, i'm curious about little mercy like drawing these sketches working with grandma trying to make things like what materiality was interesting to you what what colors were you using i'm so curious about all of this i don't know i mean i remember i'm sure some of it has to do with just seeing my grandma's house is just full of fabric all the time mm-hmm. so just being around that and watching her make things all the time and knowing that like knowing that you could make whatever you wanted. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, honestly, like I remember being obsessed with Mary Kate and Ashley and I would watch movies of theirs. (laughs) A hundred percent. Yeah. Our generation was like all Mary Kate and Ashley all the time. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like there was this like three year period where like everyone's sleepover birthdays would have like a Mm -hmm. Mary Kate and Ashley (laughs) movie. Yeah, totally. Yes. Oh, that's so, so funny. like I I mean I was obsessed with them as as kid as a kid and then like would watch them as they were getting older get into fashion design. I don't know if you remember them doing the Walmart like collaboration thing. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. They did like a designer collaboration with Walmart to make like accessibly affordable Mary Kate and Ashley like designed clothing. Interesting. But yeah, I don't know, just I looked at a lot of magazines and was like, I want to do that. I don't know. I just obsessed with Vogue and all of that sort of stuff. I don't really know the genesis of it. No, totally. I I love that. I think a lot of us have this, like, I don't exactly know where this came from. It was a confluence of a whole bunch of factors that, like, led me to this thing, or it was just a feeling, or it was just something I, like, kept coming back to. So it makes a lot of sense that there's no, like, you know, light bulb moment of Tiny Marcy being like, this is what I want to do. But (laughs) I was just curious to hear about it, and and really curious especially to hear about how, like, going to college and starting to study this thing, you're like, oh, no, like like hard 180. Like I don't, none of this makes sense to me anymore. I need to do something different. And I think that that happens for a lot of people when they go to, especially when they have like a liberal arts education where you're suddenly learning about like environmentalism, I'm putting in air quotes, like all of these things that kind of suddenly your brain is being challenged in this way that like probably you're not being challenged when you're in high school. I I wasn't at least. Yeah, no, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes when you go to college or like for our generation, having gone to college, there was like some of this level of just complete turning things on their heads, like just deciding overnight or what felt like overnight, everything is different. Now I care about all these different things. Now I've learned all this stuff and I can't unlearn it. And what does that mean for like my practice? What does that mean for how I'm approaching things and like things that I maybe used to dream about? It sounds like maybe there was a level of this happening. I think a lot of it was also like, for me, growing up, I wanted to create things because it was like a response to my super mundane surroundings, I think. Mm. Like, I grew up in the quintessential, like, Southern California suburb. Uh-huh. And then, and like, 
it was like art making was like a it felt like a rebellious response to like everything sucking Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then I got to college and everyone's making art and of course I had like the complex that everyone else is better at making art than me right so why should I bother and it, it, it already felt like there was there was so much of it there I don't want to like produce for this excess Mm-hmm. yeah it kind of hit me like pretty quickly and then I like got stuck on that for like probably a solid two years before I started like realizing like okay I think I know how I want to create stuff but mm. it's since then just been a developing process yeah and when did when did you guys meet so we met in my, my senior year yeah my Marcy's junior year. year um and we were both working at like the video equipment checkout facility like always in the background of our conversations was like you know what kind of business can we start that really like reflects our ideals and our interests and for a long time what we've been working on opening was a I mean basically like a I don't know gourmet health food store sort of thing well we the foundations of our relationship were like over creating an ice cream business oh actually. yeah that's right i forgot oh we wanted to i want to hear about this ice cream truck yeah and then oh. it turned out that because of the way we wanted to do it it was illegal so yeah that, like, we're really into raw dairy <laughs> products oh i had a feeling that we that's... wanted to have an ice cream truck that was all with like unpasteurized unheated honey as the sugar base and uh raw dairy from this particular farm fused like mm. naturally without heat yeah into the dairy and we've developed like over 20 different recipes for this company and like had already started working with graphic designers from business school plan. yeah had a business plan together and like very close to when we were going to like meet with the sba to like pitch it to them we had a conversation with uh one of the dairy producers and he was like oh you guys know that's illegal right <laughs> and uh, we were like what and he's like yeah there's this little loophole and we researched it and there's this super like obscure legal oh, thing from like the 1940s yeah that made it illegal and we won't get into that but just <laughs> yeah. we've always had like weird business concepts so we started like i think some of our first conversations practically were about business. that ice cream business and yeah mm-hmm. But yeah, like creative that business. like faded away and then it came into this like general store that was like mostly based in health food but would like encapsulate a few other things including i think clothing mm-hmm. um and then that was like whoa we're way too poor to dive into that like, yeah just and not just a store where you need refrigeration and things yeah that was like not accessible it was half that. startup costs but also like just grocery like i've worked in a lot of health food stores over the years and like i know about like the tiny margins and like staffing Mm. and like expiring product like there's all these like little things that add up to like grocery being a really dangerous first business to go into yeah so like like, even though intimidating yeah and eventually we probably do want to go down that route but like we've constantly been looking for like what's a business that we can like safely sustainably scale with our like very limited economic resources yeah and like through that and our interest in you know, our growing interest in textiles and just materials and production, we finally figured out like, hey, we could probably make something like this work. And that turned into housework. Cool. I think that that part about the like, the financial reality of it, I think that that part's been something that like, we've talked a little bit about behind the scenes that I've always been really interested in of like, I mean, I love hearing about 
how housework came together. Like y'all are thinking about having this ice cream business, then you kind of eventually morph into housework. I feel like there are some probably missing pieces of how that came to be. And I'd love to hear more about like those sort of Genesis stories. I mean, we, when we met, we were already like pretty seriously thinking about food and like, where does our food come from? How does that serve our bodies? And then we kind of were stuck in that like same mentality. Like once we had landed on what we were comfortable with for a while. Just very food focused. Yeah. Very, very food focused. Probably primarily because we were so poor that like we didn't really have the luxury to even try and think about any other impacts. Yeah. But yeah. And then one day we were living in uh this rental like we were renting a room in a house of some other folks and i was sitting on our bed which we like we hadn't even decorated the place because we knew it was going to be so temporary so most of the furnishings were theirs mm-hmm. and i was looking around and i was like hmm, it's funny i've never thought about what paint is made out of i wonder what these walls are painted with and then like i looked over and like hmm, that nightstand it's not real wood. <laughs> Carpet. It's not wool. You know? And I was like, wait a minute. Mm. And, and it, like, it started it. like hitting me like in waves like really, really hard. Like everything I looked at was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> it's plastic. And I didn't even have like strong feelings necessarily about plastic, but just knowing that it was all artificial. Artificial was terrifying. That there was mm. nothing that I like mm-hmm had like a clear understanding of how it was made that I could touch in that room. And then that Except got us. Like yeah. The glass table. yeah. There's always some glass or metal, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. But plenty of the metals also <laughs> coated in yeah, petrochemicals. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that was like a really right. big aha, uh-huh. uh-huh, but also like holy shit moment. And mm-hmm. then I just. I don't know. I started questioning everything and I was like, how does this impact me? Not just like what, what are things made out of, but what does that do to us? Emotionally and physically, emotionally, physically, Mm -hmm. spiritually, everything. Yeah. And then we kind of just went down like Mm -hmm. a research rabbit hole and like Marcy comes from like years of working in libraries. So she's got like really solid research skills and like tracking down obscure information. And we just start reading about manufacturing processes and like how different stuff is composed and like really digging into like how majorly that stuff shifted in just like the last hundred years or so. And like, you really see the same Mm. trajectory for like almost every kind of manufacturing is like around like 1850 to like 1900, like every industry just completely shifts from like whatever was happening before that to it being made from plastic or other petrochemicals. And or, like, like, during wartime. Right. Yeah. Right. I've heard that before, a, yeah. A ton of this stuff is, like, incredibly cool from, like, a technical perspective. It's like, this is really interesting that we found these kinds of solutions for stuff. But, like, when these mm. changes happened, there wasn't any thought as to the, like, impacts yeah. of this stuff like, on the environment or our bodies. Yeah, it's just like, this is scalable, people like it, whatever. And it's like, you know, there's no ill intention upon inception but like in retrospect like we're now starting to look back and be like whoa that was a mistake yeah like watching old videos from the 1940s that are promoting the benefits of like rayon and stuff and like showing you in depth Mm. how it's made 
it's really fascinating, but it's also like, that's so disgusting. Why are we comfortable with this? And yeah. we're comfortable with it because we don't know what it is. Yeah. Right. I feel like in today's sort of like sustainability landscape, we're comfortable with it because we just hear these buzzwords that sound yeah, like, like they're bamboo. a better alternative yeah. to... Yeah, and of which course... Is, right, right wearing, exactly. Like, have you seen bamboo? <laughs> yeah. Like, it does not right. look like that t-shirt right. in the slightest. Yeah. And I mean... On the rayon subject, like, I mean, I feel like one of the biggest red flags for that that, like, I can't believe people don't talk about more is, like, the fact that it's not called rayon in, like, 95% of cases now. Like, there's, like, 25 different, like, rebrandings of it mm-hmm. that, like, on a chemical, like, fibrous level, it is all exactly the same thing when it gets there. And it's just like, oh, no, this one's produced with, like, a slightly different manufacturing process or, like, a different standard. And, like, oh, no, this one recycles the wastewater. And this one comes from cotton pulp versus this one comes from bamboo pulp. But, like, the fiber becomes identical. Like, if you put that under a microscope, like, it's the same thing. Right, right. But all these different ways of packaging it because people are like, yeah, we have some new special yeah. sustainable Whether thing it's, we're like, doing. Whether it's, like, the name brands. Like, well, quotes. I probably shouldn't even say the name brands. But the more generic terms, there's, like, you know, bamboo silk or... Uh, um uh-huh. what are the other ones bamboo silk's one of my favorites vegetarian silk a lot of mm-hmm. them use the word silk which i'm surprised hasn't led to lawsuits because in the food industry like when nut milk and like things like that came around like there were lawsuits from the dairy right. industry it's like man silk manufacturers shouldn't take a cue there i mean maybe some of that has to do with like <laughs> silk primarily still being from china and like just yeah international yeah who knows? that's yeah. a whole other conversation yeah No, all of this. I mean, I I think I literally had this conversation with someone just the other day. It was probably so. I mean, we're in a quarantine pod with two other people. (laughs) Probably so. It was probably with our housemate. (laughs) Realistically, it was with my housemate. uh, That element of life right now, yeah. (laughs) I actually thought like this is so refreshing to have a conversation about something that doesn't feel like it's just entirely about COVID. (laughs) We can definitely talk about that. But it's also <laughs> super nice to be like, oh, right, we had yeah. lives yeah. before I this mean, we happened. Had we had, like, well, this, I had ideas. Like, you can't let that right. consume you. Know? Right, right. Well, okay, actually, I'm really interested in that because so the way you've structured housework is to have some food products, right? Yeah, I mean, we just introduced those right before the, like, winter season. We, I mean, very small selection. We just brought in some really high-quality chocolate and rice. Um, just kind of two ends of the food spectrum, like a food product and a food food, like a staple food. Um, and, you know, they weren't crazy popular. They did fine. Um, the rice started to pick up popularity, like after Christmas. And then, yeah, like we saw this huge shift right after like COVID-19 stuff started to blow up where people just started buying rice like crazy. And at first there were like some very clear like panic buyers buying like five, five pound bags, like 25 pounds of rice. Wow. Um, and shipping them across the country. But thankfully, most people are just, you know, they're buying a bag or two. Italy. Oh, yeah. We got an order to, really? to Milan. We had an order that was like a ton. We Two orders back to back. One that was just a bunch of used books. And it's like, okay, so you're keeping entertained during quarantine. And yeah. then the other one was a Danabe rice cooker and a five pound bag of rice and some kitchen stuff. And it's like, oh, man. Mm. Yeah. But that was cool. It was like, you know, connecting with someone in one of the worst hit areas and like providing mm. them with maybe some kind of respite was like, yeah, nice. that's really sweet. Well, and I, th- I was, I was like, oh, it's really nice that you all can keep this thing going. I guess suffice to say, I'm, I'm glad to have a conversation that isn't entirely revolving around COVID. Yeah. 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 Sure. It's nice. It's it nice. Does feel good. Yeah. 
but in terms of business impact it, it was it was weird there was like kind of right when the like the california shelter in place stuff first kicked in like business just kind of ground to a halt for like a week and mm. like we got like no orders and it was really like whoa what happened kind of scary. yeah and then like just slowly it kind of started bubbling up starting with a lot of rice orders and then basically the last month has been like one of our best and it wasn't just because of rice just like pretty mm. diverse shopping like no one's buying the new clothes but you know yeah. people are usually slow to pick up on that but right. uh yeah it's been like a surprisingly strong month and some of our other like retail friends and like local producers have also said that they've seen like pretty good rhythm of orders lately which is encouraging yeah i'm hoping that that has something to do with people on social media and stuff talking about encouraging and supporting small businesses in whatever way you're able to Mm -hmm. um just like just that conversation being had over and over i think the people that are able are like oh yeah that's that is a good idea i should do that Mm -hmm. and then also obviously not having access to in-person stores online stores are doing yeah but even i don't know i've been wondering if there's like even the shift from like a lot of bigger outlets are sold out of stuff because people immediately think Mm -hmm, to go to those bigger outlets and then they're just searching for smaller sources so then they find places like housework and hey our shipping isn't so unreasonable our prices are pretty good and even if it's not prime it's like "Eh, it's not so bad right right that's a cool i'm i am really hopeful to see that start to shift the landscape of how people think about shopping for their essentials and for other things that they want. Because I feel like everyone's first instinct is, okay, well, I'll go on Amazon. But if Amazon has like a four-day wait time, then like you might as well check the small business equivalent. Totally. I mean, so many of those decisions, like, I mean, not just with online shopping and shipping decisions, but like, you know, the difference between something that's like 90% better than its like competitive product but it's only like 15% more expensive. It's like, yeah, it's more expensive, but like the percentage of quality that you get for that small increase in price is like the value factor is like exponential. Yeah. I'm really curious to hear more about um, the clothing sourcing for housework because I know you all have like a very strict set of guidelines, but I'm really curious to hear how that's manifest in terms of the brands you carry, the gender of each of the, you know, of the clothing, like, I always think of myself as being like pretty plugged into the slow fashion scene. And I remember finding you guys and then being like, oh, here are all these brands like I never thought of or I never seen before. Like, how did well, they find cool. all these guys? Yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, that's very much all Marcy's amazing research skills. Like mm. she is just a crazy good researcher. And mm. I mean, we went into it with very specific uh, limitations for what we would allow into the store. So that yeah. kind of really limited the filters if you will like it narrowed the scope of what we were looking for um and just because of that we were able to find a lot of really cool small producers and some that are like surprisingly big and yeah i mean our our thing was really just like we want to have a clothing collection that we really know like from the bottom to the top like everything about the production so like that starts with how the cotton or the linen whatever how the fibers are grown how -hmm. they're cultivated how they're woven or knit um, how they're dyed, what the working conditions are like throughout that production chain, and then at the end, like whether they're finished, if they're naturally finished, chemically finished, like we're not going to have them be chemically finished. Um, and then just down to fine details like stitching, um, which a lot of people don't realize, like almost all clothing products are stitched with polyester, nylon, other plastics. So like even if you're buying natural fiber clothes, 
they're stitched with plastic and Mm -hmm. like finishing is a really obscure thing that people don't know about but again just same thing almost all clothing on the market is finished chemically with Mm. chemicals that shift the hand feel of a fabric on like the more mild side but all the way up to like water resistant stain resistant stuff which is like super highly toxic well and that stuff they don't even have to necessarily disclose that anywhere right? exactly yeah. i mean a lot of companies do use it as a marketing claim for like the water resistance but just right. the fear this the sheer like textural finishing treatments are like so widespread that it's just a total afterthought like you don't even consider it right. um and i mean unfortunately that's made it difficult to work with a lot of producers that don't make their own fabric um mm. because if you're buying fabric from a textile wholesaler that's just one more disconnect from the actual production and right. that's one more person you have to like rely on their word of it being whatever um so like i mean most textile wholesalers they don't even know that much about how the stuff's produced so then when you're a designer working with that person like that puts even more weight on you Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it goes farther down the chain. So like most of the people we're working with at this point, they are making the fabric from scratch. Right, right. I mean, I feel like that was the conversation that Gianna and I ended up having was yeah. like, she was like, oh, I couldn't get the details. Yep. I like couldn't, I didn't know it was opaque. And that's the conversation I've had with so many people. Mandy of Cordell, where she was like, yep, I only have this much information at these stages. So I just went straight to the source, like the new denim project sort of yeah. weaving all their, all of their totally. stuff and knowing exactly where that came from. Cause that's just, that seems to be the common theme is like you start thinking, okay, I want to make this garment. And then you start to dig deeper into it and you realize like, even if you get on the phone with these people, which is ultimately what you have to do because they don't have web presences, they don't have things documented, you still can't get information because they don't know. They're yeah. like, well, we get it from these people and well, you're going to have to ask them. And like, there's so many steps through the process where things could happen to it and where things get lost around organic certification that was, you know, yeah. way outdated, but no one ever updated anything. And, uh, yeah. And just like, I mean, Gianna was saying how she just heard from somebody else, like, hey, maybe these people that you're talking to are maybe not that trustworthy. Like we had a, I mean, uh, we can't go into too much detail, but we've had a pretty disturbing evolution of a uh, relationship with one of our vendors or former vendors. We don't work with them anymore, but we went into it thinking that they would be like a really valuable partner and just name wise they were. But even from the beginning, we were hearing from other producers to not trust them as much as we might. Mm. Um, And at first we were like, oh, that's probably just competition. They're just like talking shit to like, you know, get their share of the market, whatever. Um, Because you can only take that with so much of a grain of salt. Um, But then the, the more we learned about these people and like the more contacts we heard from who were giving us more details of this picture that was coming into fruition it was like oh these people are actually kind of sketchy and like then we like you know did some testing on the the garments ourselves and realized for example that like you know they were actually stitched with plastic when they had specifically claimed that like the batch that they produced for us was stitched with cotton and like Mm. just lots of lots of sketchy stuff yeah so gianna's story definitely hit home for us yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was I want to ask you about this because I like my my partner has gotten interested in textiles and he's had an interest but like gotten more interested like since we've been dating because you know I guess I have that effect on people or something. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. Um and I feel like we've tried to look for things for a you know more masculine body or whatever like something that's not quite so femme and 
like looked around and been like, oh, this says indigo. And we're like, like looking through it. And it's like, oh no, that's literally like the name of the brand. Not like, cause yeah. it looks cause of the way that it's like written on the tag, like it would be indigo dye. But what they're actually doing is yeah. just like confusing the hell out of the customer by like, calling their brand indigo or something. But I'm really, yeah, curious about particularly cause I think you all have like, really grown out your like offering of what you have for different genders or different types of bodies and stuff. And that was something I think I wanted to speak to you about for like, how have you sourced that? How have you kind of done that? Because it feels like the like masculine market of slow fashion op- options, it feels like pretty lackluster. If I don't know, do you agree with that? <laughs> for yeah. Sure. I mean, we like started housework with that intention very explicitly yeah and eventually we also want to open that up to to children Mm. and stuff too to like literally offer clothing for all bodies yeah but yeah it was definitely way harder um sourcing stuff for for masculine Mm. types than it was for feminine types but again, that kind of helped us find a lot of these people yeah, like, because like, we were really limiting that focus. It was like, okay, this is cool, but like, it's pretty standard, like feminine silhouettes. Mm-hmm. Like we've got to look mm-hmm. elsewhere. Yeah. That's, that's one thing. It's been like kind of a blessing and a curse having the script limitations it, for research can actually be really helpful. Like having very, very specific ideas of what you want. We keep like a massive Trello board of like all of the different brands that we found and they like move between columns of like you know possibly good how have um, we never talked about this before i feel like i talk (laughs) about trello with like every person who will listen yeah because i use it for everything i use it for like a personal accountability board and like share it with a friend so we can be accountability buddies i love that i mean that makes so much sense to have like your possible move to like you know, this stage of vetting them and this next stage. I think stage. we have like five levels of it. It's, it's like it's they absurd. exist. I need to like condense it a little. Yeah, bit. we probably could have I a big three, but I think that. it's like this brand exists. This brand might have good materials. They mm. probably have good materials. Like, and then it's like we've contacted mm. them and like they're pending because we need answers on X, Y, and mm. Z. And, and then it's then like, okay, officially finally you're they're approved. Good. We will work with you eventually or approved and we're stocking or yeah yeah we roll them out rejected column yeah Yeah. (laughs) but anyways yeah starting out housework with having masculine clothing was a necessary Mm -hmm. goal yeah and maybe even now we're still like a little too ahead of ourselves or ahead of the scene with that like obviously there's interest in it but i still feel like maybe we're marketing something that like there isn't quite the audience for yet i don't know I think that we have we have a pretty good balance of. of it's true. Customers. I think our customer base is like sixty forty. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. I feel like in traditional whatever you know, quote quote traditional fashion retail, the men's market is usually like way 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 less than the the women's whatever. Using these all of these terms very um, in sure, air yeah, quotes, <laughs> no, um, in case that's not yeah. obvious. Um, but that's cool to hear that that that, that breakdown is kind of the way that it is. I do wonder sometimes, though, like if we had gone a more conventional route, if we wouldn't have been able to grow Mm -hmm. quicker. Like, I think that's kind of one of the big things we struggle with with housework is like we're very particular about what we want this to be or not be. And sometimes that goes counter to like, you know, what might necessarily be, quote unquote, best for the business, you know, and like we don't have like like, a big marketing budget and stuff. So it all has to be organic and, you know. 
organic growth is really dependent on like the cultural zeitgeist and like how you fit into that. Yeah, I think that also having such strict standards limits us to the brands that we choose to work with. And the smaller the brand name is, weirdly does actually have an effect, which is very mm-hmm. frustrating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you mean the how... quality across the board is the same. Like that yeah. Crosswork has a standard, mm-hmm. you know, so they're they're all equally amazing. Mm-hmm. But the bigger the brand name, the better it does. Yeah. And Even though that's sometimes more stuff. expensive. Yeah. I guess that's been kind of a surprise to us is like we sort of thought like within the slow fashion community, like it's slow fashion. They're small brands. Like you shouldn't probably care about how recognizable the brand name is. Right. And like you would think that it would almost be like exciting that like, oh, this incredible product is made from this brand that I've never right. heard of. That's yeah. awesome. But we've definitely seen that, like, the larger brands that we carry sell better. And honestly, it's a little disappointing. <laughs> but we're hoping that'll change over time as, like, housework becomes more of a brand. People, like, just trust it. And it's like, okay, it's a housework brand. It's right. Be good. It makes sense to me, though, because I think people are probably looking for that social validation of, like, absolutely, is this a good thing? In addition to that, like, can I, well, and can I see it on other bodies because like other people are posting it online? I actually think that that's like a part of, that's actually, I think of for myself, at least like when I'm purchasing, I feel like there are times where I want to see it in a few different contexts or a few different lights before uh-huh. I like am comfortable spending that kind of money on something that I is like sight unseen because I am so like tactile and stuff. Um, so that, I feel like maybe that's that's a a part of what's, what you're noticing. And it's like maybe less disappointing and more just like the reality of like, once there's enough people who've like tried it on and been sort of brand ambassadors for you kind of thing. Yeah. It's like an escape velocity concept sort of. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I'm curious too, Hubbard, to talk with you more about the growth of the business and how that's worked for you and how you see it happening. And like, it seems to me that like you have these amazing, beautiful garments that are for all intents and purposes expensive. They are, they are what a a consumer would think of as expensive, you know, for very good reason, but it's, it's money. It's actual money. You have to, you have to fork out. And I've always been like, how do y'all fork out (laughs) for this? You know, these things that you then need to have physically in your, you know, wherever it is that you keep them so you can ship them out. How does this all work? It was really just a mix of like savings and small business loans and just doing it with like the smallest beginning inventory possible and just scaling as we go. Like we, we both work full time and don't personally make anything from housework. Every money, like all the profit from housework just goes back into scaling housework. So it goes into expanding the inventory and like funding our super tiny marketing budget. Um, right. And it's, it's really mostly just about doing what we do and doing it consistently and like letting word of mouth and social media do its work. Um, and yeah, I mean, we started the business with maybe like, I don't know, I think 30 K of inventory, which was like, as far as small business loans go, is like very small. Um, like it's actually a lot harder to get financing for businesses, like in the sort of like 20 to 50 K range than it is to get funding for smaller and larger ones. Like there's a lot of startup capital for like under $5,000 businesses because they think of those as like, you know, it's just like one person with a sewing machine that wants to make shirts or like, you know, on the larger scale, it's like 50, 75 K and beyond is like another level of business. And like those people are going to go on to like employ people. But I feel like there's a lot of people who would love to start businesses like kind of in between, in between those two areas. 
And it's just impossible to get funding for that stuff. It's really weird. And I don't know if it's like from the bank's perspective, like a gray area of like risk where like it's just enough startup capital that it's like risky, but not enough to make it a sure thing that they can succeed. You know, I I don't even know. But yeah, that was definitely a big challenge. So like, you know, we had to incorporate credit cards into our our thing, but ultimately it's, it's worked out well. Hopefully someday we'll actually be able to make this like our full-time thing. But for now we just, you know, do this and work other jobs and hope that Right, right. I think that that's a very common story, you know, of like, most people are doing both things for years and years, unless they're, you know, independently wealthy somehow, or they have some kind of capital. And usually along with that capital, there are strings for a specific type of growth, which means that you don't have control over it anymore. That was another conversation that we had when we were starting it. It It's like, or I guess soon after we started it, like we you know, because we knew that we could start it ourselves because we both worked with like, uh, we worked for like a small natural body care company and like did all of their like copywriting and photography and social media. And, mm. Like we both like knew how the whole background of e-commerce and all that worked. Um, yeah. So we were confident that we could like start this business if we could afford the inventory. Um, and then like once we started it and got it out there, it's like, this looks really good. Like we could totally bring this to quote unquote investors and get funding to like quote unquote properly grow it, scale it. But like, yeah, the second you bring them in, it's like the expectations for like the typical like unrestrained capitalism come into play. And it's like, we're not comfortable with that. (laughs) And like, you don't really understand what we're doing and you're going to impose standards that are going to screw with what the business really is. And if we don't have that, then we don't have the business. Right. Right. I mean, if we didn't have our material standards, we would very quickly just become another like boutique for upper middle class urban people. Like, you know, there's a lot of companies that have like an aesthetic that's like related to where we are, but it's completely superficial. Right. You know, if you don't dig into the the details, like our uniqueness isn't really as obvious. Or it's like novel. Yeah. It's a novelty thing. Like we see a lot of companies are like starting to bring in like a line of like really clean clothes or like some people are starting to flirt with naturally dyed bandanas Mm -hmm. and it's like that's good i'm glad that like there's more of the interest there but it's kind of even worse that it's like treated as a novelty and like we really want to normalize that like that was another really explicit goal is like just making this stuff feel less weird yeah i have a question probably my last question or like one of my last questions which is i know you're thinking about like one day clothing for all bodies and like you know, children being involved in that has having a child changed how you're viewing that the kind of materials and functionality of that? Is that part? Of, is that help? Is that like part of the research process now? Is what would you say about that? I think that if not from the beginning, like soon after, I was like, I want to also have clothes mm-hmm. for kids, which is funny because organic baby clothing I think is maybe the first like place I saw organic Mm. clothing like you know health food stores like Whole Foods have like the organic birds bees and that sort of thing so that like planted the seed for me but then I realized that like most organic baby clothing while it's great that it's it's there and it is what it is it's it's all dyed with what what I call whatever dyes. They're, they're not <laughs> petrochemical natural. dyes. They're petrochemical based dyes. Um, whether they're the worst or not so bad, they're still not. Yeah, they're not dyes. up to the so housework standard. Yeah, they're and just that 
coming into contact with the baby's skin, now having a baby and like watching the way they interact with their clothing, like it's constantly in their mouth, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's extra disturbing to me, even though it's, it is still organic. So yeah, just having, having a child, I guess, is just like, I visually get to watch the way he interacts with textiles mm. all the time. And it's, it's more just like re reaffirmed my beliefs in him and other babies yeah. deserving completely natural textiles to, and just environments in general yeah and environments in general to to clothe their bodies like his his blankets his diapers his everything yeah. you know um, we would we would definitely obviously apply the same standards to the baby stuff yeah. and that similarly to adult clothing is is also limiting right there's way less options right that intensely yeah just while we're on the Mm. baby topic though like another conversation we've had a lot is like how uh, like marcy said organic baby clothing was kind of the first place we saw like prominent marketing of organic Mm. textiles and that like it just seems weird that people would buy this stuff for their kids but then not consider it for Mm. themselves yeah like like they think their their babies babies deserve everything but then after they're five years old forget (laughs) it because now i can't buy that stuff for them anymore let's just go to wherever you know it's like don't you have to keep sustaining that standard through their life and like don't you want that like same quality for yourself right seems strange i think a lot of that is is price yeah totally but then but that's so tied into like how many articles of clothing you expect that you need to own and stuff. Like, yeah. you know, even, even though we like, you know, we have access to all of these clothes through our company, like we have such small wardrobes. Like we each have like a few pairs of pants and like, you know, 12 tops between like shirts and jackets. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, and I, th- but I think you all are unusual in that. Like even the slow fashion scene, Largely, I think there is still an expectation that there will be novelty, that there will be newness in your wardrobe, and that you will continue to to gather more and more throughout your life. And and I sort of struggle with that because there, are, as much as I'm trying to really be consistent and ref, like confined to what I have and like try all these weird ways of wearing the things I already own, there's still a level of like, well this is boring. Like, when am I going to get something yeah, else? It's sure. like, it's a, so I, I do think that that's where sort of housework comes in. And that's where like brands like housework come into like, if you are going to, you know, be very mindful about this purchase, maybe go ahead and spend the the amount of money, you know, like spend the time really thinking about it and considering whether this is a purchase you really want and need. And then, you know, and that kind of that financial investment is it it forces you to do that if you have the ability to. I mean, on that same topic, like, got to talk about the fact that, like, people are willing to fork out absurd amount of money for, quote unquote, high fashion products that are completely not justified by the production. And that's something we find really disturbing is like the amount of money that these high fashion brands charge for their stuff when, like, at this point in history, they're producing those garments for pennies. And you're literally just paying for the right. name. And like the difference between that and the, like the stuff we carry and a lot of, you know, people that you interview are producing. It's like, if you really, if, this is, if you look into it, it's like the value is really there. Like, and just educating people more about that. It's like super important. Right. And people have kind of gotten to a lot of people, I think, particularly like in the Bay Area, let's say, have gotten to a place where like, oh, spending this kind of money for a meal feels reasonable at, an, at a restaurant that's right. on the table. It's sort yeah. of like, where do, where do we get to this point? I remember having this conversation with my friend Sam, who lives in Melbourne now, but but grew up 
in San Francisco and kind of was in the restaurant scene in San Francisco. And it's like, people are very comfortable spending these large amounts of money to have one very nice meal when you could spend that same yeah, amount of money or less on a very beautiful garment that you'll wear over and over and over. Like, where's the disconnect where that one-time purchase feels okay, but this doesn't. Like, we get over here that, like, food has a strong impact on our bodies. Where are we missing that? for clothing too yeah. yeah i feel like on instagram we've like direct messaged conversations about like the the whole like verging on like anti-capitalistic tendencies within slow fashion yeah. and like the like struggle between like trying to buy nothing and like what should you buy and like where do you stop yes. and stuff and like i i feel like we've already said this to each other but we should probably talk about it on the show that just like if you really understand the impacts of how something is produced like a lot of those anti-capitalistic tendencies kind of disappear because like if you know that this product in its creation had all these positive impacts and don't really have any significant negative trade-offs and then at the end of life there is an end of life that functions like it really like it goes back into yeah. the earth like the main issue with like rampant capitalism is that so much of this stuff has no end of life. Ways. Yeah, it's just pure mm -hmm. waste. Well, and the like stages of exploitation along the way. But if you've verified that people aren't being exploited, then you've kind of thought through a lot of the things that people traditionally think of as being wrong with capitalism. Yeah. Totally. And I mean, of course, we're constantly struggling with like increasing the verification of that stuff. Like it's hard to guarantee that. But I mean, even if you're like getting it right 80% of the time, just like that, that sort of shift, like, I feel like our generation has really admirably trained ourselves to like have that anti-capitalistic streak because we grew up in a time when almost everything that we could buy was right. terrible in both its production and it its end of life. It was like the peak, I mean, the 90s, yeah, the 90s. Like, yeah. the peak totally. of like of capitalism yeah. really like, wasteful capitalism. capitalism yeah totally yeah no i would yeah. agree with that because like on the other side of things capitalism like you know in in the best of times and the best of operations like does support innovation and like you know it can touch communities that are you know otherwise marginalized and that's like a whole other conversation yeah something that feels really interesting about this particular moment in time is that there is this sort of people are starting to think about like where does my money go? How do I, you know, how do I provide mutual aid within my community? How do I support small businesses? Yeah. I want to ask, I imagine that like what you're planning to do for the rest of the year kind of thing for housework has shifted considering <laughs> like, I imagine you maybe had like some in-person things you were thinking of doing, but I'm curious to hear like what you're feeling excited about for housework, what, what we should expect coming up from housework, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we, we were thinking. I mean, from the beginning of housework, like having a physical store was mm. and still is a goal. Yep. And we were thinking that this would probably be the year. We and almost did it last year, but then we decided to focus on Tufa. <laughs> <laughs> the baby. But yeah, and and then obviously this this all happened and it's like, okay, this is not the right time. But we were so grateful at the yeah. same time that we didn't open right. that because our business very likely would have just completely fallen apart yeah. had we gone that right. route. Um, so timing, I guess, worked out in our favor as far as that goes. Mm. But yeah, we had like a bunch of pop-ups lined up, for example, mm. that have all been postponed. Um, who knows? Indefinitely. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But, but I mean, if nothing else, we're happy that we've been able to like keep supporting a lot of the people that we work with. Yeah. Like a lot of the folks we work with, uh, with like really small textile producers in India, mm. like India is totally locked down and like 
there's tons of economic uncertainty and like just being able to funnel money to those people in just pre-production, you know, like, okay, you can't make stuff now, but like this money is for when you can produce Mm, it. Like that is pretty powerful and like feels really good. And I mean, hopefully if this doesn't last too long, like, you know, things will be able to just pick back up where they left Mm. off. Um, But that's like the big question. That's one of the biggest things that scares me is like, if this is temporary, like, because it's such an artificial halt on the economy, it's like hypothetically, if things get back to normal, like, you know, people will just get hired back at the job they had before and everything just kicks back in order. But like, the longer it goes on, like the more the uncertainty is and like the scarier it gets. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we're optimistic about the year for housework and for the world, but, you know, ultimately, who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think that the only thing we know for sure to a degree, I mean, we, we're basically just using this year now as a way of like still slowly expanding our offerings. Mm. For food and home We're going to expand on food a little bit, which is something we've been wanting to do anyway, but now we feel like is extra important. And a few, like we have a couple clothing brands that we know that we're going to be working with later in the year. Assuming everything goes well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. We could talk all day. I know. That's the thing. It's so we could keep going on. It was great chatting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. The Close Knit Podcast is hosted by me, Ani Lee. A huge thank you to Andrew Bruce for writing podcast theme music that makes me genuinely smile every time I hear it. And giant thanks to my amazing producer, Amelia Harubi. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash closeknit.